Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Hi, everyone. This week, we have Ian Leslie on the show. Ian started his career in advertising, but now writes and presents about human behavior, including psychology, culture, tech, and business for publications like The New Statesman, The Economist, The Guardian, and The FT. Most recently, he wrote a book called Conflicted, Why Arguments Are Tearing Us Apart and How They Can Bring Us Together, and is also the author of the substack The Ruffian, where he covers everything from politics to decision-making. Juan Torres and Nick Kirish were delighted to chat with Ian about some of the topics covered in his book, including why being passive-aggressive is the worst behavior with no outcome, the power of humor in dealing with conflict, low versus high-contact societies, devil's advocates and their weaknesses, and the answer to the question on all of our minds, what is the most important rule to dealing with conflict? Enjoy. Yeah, Leslie, welcome to the Value Perspective podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I am very well, thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. For those that don't know you or follow your Substack and are not aware of the books that you have written, can you please provide us with a little bit of an introduction? Sure. I am a writer um, of nonfiction books. So my, so I, my books tend to be about human behavior. And I also, I'm a journalist. I write for the New Statesman, The Economist, the FT. My first career was in advertising. So I spent a long time working in advertising and marketing strategy, then became a professional writer about sort of 10, 15 years ago. And uh, yeah, since then, I published three books. The first one was about lying. The second one was about curiosity, the trait of curiosity and why it's valuable and how to cultivate it. And the third one, which is the one we're mostly going to talk about, I think, is about disagreement and conflict and how to have better disagreements, more productive conflicts. So in each book, I tend to take an aspect of human behavior and look at it in the round and try and work out what we're getting wrong about it, um, or how to see it differently, and then and then I, I explore it with experts from lots of different fields. Some of them are academic experts, psychologists, sociologists, and so on, um, and and some of them are practitioners, people who are kind of involved or practicing this 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 uh, aspect of behaviour, this trait, in different ways in in their work. And I try and draw together all the different themes that that I've explored, and you know, put it into a kind of entertaining package for the reader. And so, yeah, that's the kind of the balance of my work. I write, I give talks on the themes of my books, and I have a newsletter called The Ruffian, and I still do sort of, you know, consultancy of, of various kinds. So yes, it's a it's a sort of a motley collection of things, but they, they kind of all 
Kahia, if you squint. So the content, content of your newsletter, which comes in the form of a substack, is quite interesting, quite diverse. But I'm a little bit curious about how did you came about the name The Ruffian? That sounds like uh, it makes me very curious. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of an odd name. Um, I, I, and in a way, I'm sort of wish I hadn't chosen it because I, but in another way, I'm sort of weirdly proud of it. Okay. So it's, it's basically a bad pun. When I started the newsletter, I thought this is going to be a space where I can try out unformed ideas that aren't, where I don't necessarily want kind of editorial input. So I'm not going to kind of run it past a, a magazine editor or, or, or a book editor. I'm just going to try some stuff out here and, and have a dialogue with, with my readers and so on. And so I thought, well, if it's about rough ideas and it's by Ian Leslie, maybe it's the rough Ian. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so it really is as cheap a gag as that. Um, and But, you know, it's gone so well. The newsletter's gone really well. People seem to really like it. And so I'm, I'm sort of oddly fond of it now. And in a way, I take, I take comfort from the fact that my favourite band, uh, ruffian readers will, will know this because sometimes I, I, well, quite often I write about them. <laughs> um, the Beatles also had a terrible name. I mean, the Beatles is just a terrible brand name, right? I mean, nobody would choose the Beatles. If you're going to say, okay, what's a great name for a band, for the greatest band on earth? You wouldn't choose this silly name. And basically it's a, it's a bad pun, a bit like the ruffian. So they were fans of Buddy Holly and the crickets. And they thought, oh, the crickets, what, what's another insect? Beatles. And then John says, well, why don't we put an A in B? And then it's like beat music. It's a pun on beat music and it's the Beatles, right, guys? And they were like, yeah, okay, John. And so they end up with this really silly name. And, and uh, you know, before they're famous, anybody who hears about the Beatles, you know, promoters, record label people, they're like, what? What is that name? That's the stupidest name I've ever heard. <laughs> and, and it would have to, you know, people would have to explain it and they'd say, well, this is... And then the weird thing is, once people had it explained to them, it kind of bonded them to the group because it almost felt like you're now part of a secret society where you understood the meaning <laughs> of, of, of the Beatles. So it actually had this perverse effect where it kind of worked for them. So yeah, I, I because I work in branding and advertising, I often think about what makes a good brand name and so on. And this is a, a sort of interesting and salutary story where actually names that seem quite bad can actually be weirdly good. Um, so that's what I'm hoping that the, the, the ruffian is about as well. <laughs> it's a It's a really good name. Um, so we're going to go from from your favourite band to uh, one of my favourite TV show, which is which is Seinfeld. We're going to kick off there, and and we're going to talk about that because you, you wrote a piece on your Substack called Exit Strategies, which talks about this thing with Jerry Seinfeld, who who really disliked and dealt with conflict during his his ten years recording on the sitcom, and in particular when he was trying to address this issue of of kind of conflict amongst the cast. Uh, and and crew about how he believed that passive aggression was possibly the worst way to deal with a disagreement, um, and it's something you brought up in your book as as well. And it's something that you know we see, you know, you often see in in teams which aren't functioning well as this kind of passive aggression. So, can you kind of talk a little bit more about that and and about what can be done to uh, address that in kind of dysfunctioning teams? Yeah, and it's it's a great way to start this conversation because in a way it's kind of at the heart of of the book. You know, when I started out thinking about this area of conflict and disagreement, I thought I was going to be writing a book about how to how to have how, almost how to avoid arguments and disagreements, you know, a kind of 
Why? What? Can we stop having all these toxic arguments and disagreements in politics and at work and, and elsewhere and just kind of get along, that kind of thing? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, hey, that's quite boring. <laughs> as a book. Um, but also, that's not actually the problem. The problem is that we now see so visibly so many bad examples of disagreement and conflict because you see it play out in, in social media and, and elsewhere um, that we are more uncomfortable than ever with having any kind of disagreement um, at work or, or even at home. And I think most of us are somewhat anxious about disagreement. Quite a lot of us are quite conflict averse. And because of this kind of charged cultural and political environment that we're in, you see, especially in the workplace, I think, people ve very nervous about having their disagreements out in the open. Now, what happens when you have a bunch of talented, opinionated people sitting around a table theoretically or, or, or literally, um, who, who naturally will all have different views and different opinions on whatever they're discussing. Um, what happens when they don't have those disagreements out in the open, when they don't share them? Do the, do the disagreements go away? No, they don't. They just become submerged and they go underground into, yeah, into, into passive aggression, into subtle kind of unspoken maneuvering, into uh, more kind of personalized and more kind of implicit forms of conflict. And that means that all the good things about conflict, which is about a kind of competition between ideas and, and, and opinions, just doesn't, doesn't happen. And all the bad side of conflict, which is a kind of stress on relationships, happens, but but not at the not at a level where you can necessarily not at a visible level. You can't really see it; you just kind of feel it. You, you, could, you know, we call it office politics, right? Office politics is basically passive aggression at scale in in, in an organisation. And and so actually, when you avoid disagreements, they don't go away; they just become corrosive to the the team ethos and to the relationships between uh between collaborators um and and this is not just me saying this right this is not just from observation or experience if you talk to organizational psychologists you, you talk to people who study this they will they've studied very the various different types of of conflict and disagreement you know ranging from very hostile to, to not at all to not at all hostile and many of them kind of have their virtues they say oh this kind of conflict is good in this situation this kind of conflict works here but the one kind of conflict where they have never found any benefits in any of their studies is passive aggression. It is just a complete zero, right? <laughs> and so I think what Seinfeld was saying, you know, was the moment I sense that there is some kind of tension, um, pent up tension in, in the team, I will just say straight up, you know, okay, so what's the problem here? Let, let, let's talk about it. Because if it stays unaired, it just kind of eats away like dry rot at, at the structure of the team. And as I say, not only that, but you also, there's a kind of opportunity cost, there's a hidden cost of you don't get any of the benefits of open disagreement. In an open disagreement, you get to argue your point, the other people get to argue their point, and the, the decision that you're taking or the point of view that you're trying to formulate is much, much more rigorous as a result. But um, passive aggression yeah, uh, is about how to have them out in, in, in the open. Sorry, go on. No, no, I, I wanted to kind of explore that a little bit more because I think, you know, that's it, kind of fascinating because we're going to come on to talk about how we have better conflict and better challenge. But clearly in most situations, you know, we, we might idealise that as 
we both want to, or a group wants to, have a more constructive element of challenge because they see the benefits of that. In passive aggression, we're in a situation where someone's doing that probably because they are frustrated, they want to wound. There's not necessarily a positive intent to that. And one of the things that's quite interesting about that is a lot of us would recognise passive aggression when it occurs, but we're not sure how to call that out or how to deal with it. So, you know, is that something where there's a general way to to deal with that, a better, worse? Is it specific to people and situations? What do you do about passive aggression when you when you see it in a in a context? Well, um, that's a big question, right? And I could we can answer it in in, in different ways. So I, I'm I'm going to not attempt to give give you all the answers, <laughs> but I'll say one or two things about it. One of them is at a cultural level rather than a kind of just an individual level. There are things you can do to kind of set the rules explicitly and implicitly of disagreement and conflict. And you, so so as leaders, you can say explicitly, and don't underestimate, by the way, that the value of, of just stating things very plainly to your team. You just say, you know, we value open you know, positively phrased, but open disagreement on this team, right? We, we place a great value on conflict and disagreement. We believe that's how we get smarter. So if you have points, if you have disagreements, especially if you're more junior and you disagree with someone more senior, by the way, because we can, we can get onto questions yeah. of hierarchy, but that's often where disagreements get squashed. Um, we want to hear them. We want to hear them aired. Um, and then you practice it, you model it, right? As a, as a leader, you should be modeling that kind of disagreement both with your peers and then up and down the hierarchy in front of everyone. And you should be showing them that you can have open and sometimes pretty passionate disagreements with people without actually falling out with with whoever you're arguing with. You could do it in a kind of positive and, and, and a, you know, fun way sometimes, right? But um, it's not a kind of, it shouldn't be a really kind of horrible, stressful um, uh, dangerous um, thing to do. And it is frankly in a lot of organizations. Yeah. So I think just modeling it, I, I mean, I'll quickly tell you about a friend of mine, just because it's on my mind, she was telling me about it recently, who joined uh, Netflix at a senior level. And she joined from, well, I won't name the organization, but it's an organization which is kind of well known for its very English passive aggressive kind of <laughs> culture, where people are very polite to each other all the time. And and Netflix, uh, because Reed Hastings is very big on open disagreement, open open conflict, is is the opposite, right? They encourage you explicitly and implicitly yeah. to have all your arguments, your disagreements, your debates out on the table. And I said, what was it like? You know, was it pretty uncomfortable to go from that culture to that culture? And she said, yeah, it was uncomfortable for about a week. Um, when I, you know, I would send an email or I'd make a presentation and people would say, well, I don't agree with that. And sometimes the most junior people in the room would say, you know, I think that's wrong. And she said, but after you get over that hump, it's incredibly liberating. It's relaxing, actually, because you know you can see all the disagreements. They're, they're visible to you. They're in the room, right? People say, this is why I think you're wrong. This is why that's going to fail. Or this is why that's a bad decision. Then you can consider them, right? You, you will ignore some of them. You might ignore all of them. Go and do it. Yeah. But you know what the objections are. Whereas at my former organization, I would give my point of view and everyone will go, hmm, yes, yes, very good. Yes, excellent, right, yes. And I knew that the moment I left the room, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, there would be, you know, whispering in corridors or, or whatever it is um, and and kind of undermining me. And so, you know, what, what seems like a stressful idea, i.e. everybody's kind of, you know, vigorously disagreeing with each other is actually 
relaxing because yeah, you, you, you can kind of you, you can see what's going on. That's a great segue into my next question. Very early in your latest book, Conflicted, you explain what context is in terms of high context and low context from the point of view of different cultures. How Eastern cultures tend to be more on the low side of context, Western cultures more on the high side of context, and how to a certain extent social media had make things a little bit worse when it goes to the extremes. So I wanted to ask you, could mm. you explain this difference, between, what context is first, the difference between high and low? It's actually the the other way around from where you put, which by the way, is completely understandable because I mix them up all the time, or at least I have to think about it as, I, as I'm saying it. But actually, Asian cultures are, are high context it's a distinction from um, anthropology, by the way, which which they apply to to countries and regions, but actually you can apply it inside any um, inside a country or inside an organization or in you, uh, high context uh, interactions and low context interactions happen all the time in different ways, right? But but the the country comparisons are kind of easy to understand. So let's start there. So a high context culture is one in which much of what you say is determined by the norms and traditions of, of the culture. And communication is quite implicit and, uh, and oblique. So in a, in a Japanese uh, meeting, you know, somebody, a Westerner in a Japanese meeting may not understand a lot of what's what's going on because a lot of the points of view are not expressed directly and direct disagreement in particular is frowned upon. People can just kind of hint at things or, or you know, raise an eyebrow and everybody kind of kind of gets it because there's a kind of, there's a lot of, you know, stuff that's unsaid is just kind of said by the norms and traditions of people in the room. In a low context culture, where you can have, uh, you know, generally kind of more diverse groups of people, and 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 uh, low context cultures are kind of America and and, and UK, the Anglosphere generally. Um, you have to spell things out a lot more. They're a lot more explicit. There tends to be a lot more talking, just a lot more verbiage, a lot more words are used. Everybody is expected to speak their mind, right? It's a more kind of individualistic culture. Again, this is all relative because we all know that that doesn't, that doesn't always happen for, for reasons we'll get on to. But just relative to Asian cultures, you know, it's more individualistic. People are expected to say what they think. And therefore, there's more kind of dry tinder for disagreement because there are just more, more kind of differing opinions on display and being articulated. And therefore, there, there is more kind of clashing of different viewpoints. Now, I just think it's a really kind of interesting distinction because then you can apply it to different as I say, different environments, different contexts, and you can look at different types of meeting or different types of media. So um, say a face-to-face -face meeting is, is, is pretty high context because um, I'm, I'm in the room with you. I can hear what you're saying, but I can also kind of get a sense of you as a person. I can see your body language and you just have kind of an intuitive sense for that person's presence. At the other end of the scale, a discussion over WhatsApp you know, is very low context. And on social media, it's almost zero context because often you're, you're, dealing, you're talking to people you've no idea even who they are, right? And so all you have are the words and, and, and all you have often is just the, the disagreement and the thing that you're disagreeing about. And that's why it often breaks down. 
because you don't have that kind of wider context of of the person's background and their lifestyle and, and their experiences and so on that you get when either you're in the same culture or at least if you're if you're in the same room. So kind of the, the, the big kind of global story here is that the whole world is becoming more low context, right? Uh, you know, whether it's China or America, but everywhere's moving in this direction because of the media we're using, right? The internet is, is low context um, by, by definition. The, the communication tools we use tend to be low context. You know, a Zoom a Zoom call is is higher context than than an an, an email, but a Zoom call is is lower context than a face to face meeting. And then just culturally and economically, you know, we're moving into more diverse groups. Everyone's moving to cities. Cities are full of people from different backgrounds, different religions. We're, we're more diverse in every way, right? As everyone knows. And, and that just means you can't rely on these kind of shared norms, these kind of shared traditions to do, to do all the communicating for you. We have to spell things out. Everyone's expected to have their own view. We're egalitarian in terms of who's, who gets to speak or we try to be. Um, and therefore, there's just a huge amount more disagreement and a huge amount of conflict, right? And the world is kind of moving in that direction. But at the same time, nobody has prepared us for it. So thank you very much for making the clarification. I totally got, uh, got them the other way around. But when I was reading that in your book, the one thing that came to mind in the in the in the context of dealing with conflict uh, or better communications and team dynamics in the working environment is the whole working from home versus coming back to the office uh, after the pandemic. And I guess one thing that came to mind, which I had never thought about, is the fact that how much more difficult it is to understand the cues from someone else on the team and deal with a conflict when you are working from home relative to having that person or seeing that person in a working environment. Yes, um, I think that's right. And you just have less context to work with, even on a, on a Zoom call. Um, there are so many cues that we unconsciously pick up on when we are in the room. Um, as I say, you get a much stronger feel for the, the person or the, or the people that you're talking to when you are in their physical presence. And even things like just the, just the small microseconds or microsecond delay on speech has an effect in terms of how we're interacting. It tends to just kind of make things a little bit more formal. Um, and so, you know, there's less kind of crossfire, there's less kind of talking over and interrupting each other, which in some ways is good, right? Because it means you can, you know, if there's too much interrupting, it's just, it's just a meeting just becomes kind of babble or, or people get talked over a lot and so on. But the downside is Zoom calls tend to be a little bit more formal and a bit more regimented. You know, one person kind of talks at a time. And I think in those situations, it's it's less easy to have really kind of good, creative, passionate um, debates and, and, and dialogues. I'm, no, I'm um, now really, really conscious about interrupting you with another question. No, 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 about please go for it. <laughs> I'm interrupting. I, I mean, it, a lot of that, it feels like there is a kind of um, obvious next question from that, which is if we're moving to a, a kind of more low context and more say it how you see it, call it out kind of environment where conflict is perhaps out in the open, it kind of begs the question of how we create environments uh, where we can have good conflict. 
you know, psychologically safe environments? What are the kind of, you know, what are the things that we need to do to create the the kind of melting pot to have positive disagreement, constructive disagreement, rather than, um, you know, a much more negative interpretation of, of conflict? Yeah, so there are the things that you can do at the kind of, as I say, at the organizational level or the cultural level, and things you can do at the at the interpersonal level, you know, skills that we can all practice as individuals. And in the book, I kind of talk on, uh, at both those at both those levels. But I think in broad terms, what you're aiming to do in the workplace is just to create a culture in which open disagreement, is seen as something positive and to be welcomed. And that, and that when you're disagreeing with somebody, you know, strongly or, or even, you know, openly, and there's a sense of confrontation and so on, that's not a sign of disrespect. Um, it's actually the opposite. I'm disagreeing with you because I respect you, because I want to hear you come back with a better argument. Or, or, or you know, between us, we'll create a third uh, point of view or decision that's better than the one that either of us have, have have come up with, right? That's the that's the best way to think about it. It should be thought about as ultimately a kind of a creative act, right? A really good disagreement. You're you're coming up with something new. You're not just kind of accepting one person's view or the other the the other view. Um, and at the interpersonal level, um, and there's lots more to say about that, but that's that's the kind of you know the broad aim that that you're looking for. Mm. Um, at the interpersonal level. It's about understanding a little bit about the, uh, the psychology that's in play and understanding that in any conversation, two things are going on. There are two channels of communication going on. One is called the content level, which is the explicit thing that we are discussing, the thing that we are disagreeing about, right? Um, and the second one is, is the relationship level, which is unspoken and implicit. And that's more kind of, what does this person think about me? And what do I think about them? Am I getting the respect that I deserve from this person? Am I getting the affection that I, whatever it is, you know, deserve? Am I, am I, is that, does this person see me in the way I want to be seen? Right now, when debate and dialogue and, and, and disagreements go wrong, it's usually because there's some sort of unspoken conflict at that relationship level that hasn't been settled. Um, and that derails the content conversation. And it actually becomes a sort of irrational or, 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 or angry or toxic or just sullen and kind of passive aggressive yeah. conversation that doesn't go anywhere. And so as an individual, when you find yourself in a sort of that situation, a bad disagreement, you should ask yourself, what's the problem at the relationship level here? And is there something I can do to fix it? Often it's because that other person is feeling insecure. Sometimes it's you, right? You have to think about yourself as well. But um, often it's because somebody in the room is feeling defensive. And, and if you can do your best to remove the reason for that person's defensiveness, you'll often find that disagreement goes a lot better. I think it's it's kind of fascinating. I, I read a read a book recently called Humble Inquiry that talks a bit about this, and and the Netflix book you talked about, No Rules Rules, mm. the Reed Hastings book talks a lot about this as well. About um, you know, the first is is kind of coming out and saying the thing you disagree about, but the second thing, which is as important, is working out a way to do it with positive intent, so that the person you're disagreeing with understands your positive intent. So and because. 
you know, the reality is, is that you can tell someone the most flattering thing in the world, but if they think your intent is not positive, uh, you know, they'll they'll consider your mo- and your motives impure. They'll consider you to be kind of sycophantic, a bit painful. What does that person want? Whereas someone can tell you something very, very difficult, very troubling, and very hard to hear. But if you believe their intent is positive, then then you take that in in the right way. So it's interesting to hear you talk about you know personal relationships being incredibly important. Is that something where it's about how you give the feedback in terms of yourself, or do you have to tailor the way that you um, interact with people to the person you're speaking to? Which of those is more important, thinking about the person receiving it or you as the person giving it? Oh, yeah. Good good question. I mean, I I think it's both. um, Because... but helping understanding what's going on in your head and in your heart um, in these situations is really going to help you manage the other people in the room as well, right? Um, kind of doing some analysis on yourself you know, helps you analyze what's going on, on with other people. So actually just noticing what happens to you when somebody disagrees with you, right? Notice that you feel a little bit tenser physically, mentally. Notice that you start to kind of almost um, narrow your focus so that you're just focusing on how can I prove that I'm right now? It's like the fight or flight. Can, you, know. you get a bit of yes, that kind you, of... <laughs> there's a, it literally is a fight or flight reaction. And I said, well, you know, we're not evolved to disagree well. We, you know, we're basically evolved to kind of either collaborate or prepare for a physical fight. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, we, we grew up in very kind of high context groups, you know, either hunter-gatherer groups or, or kind of, you know, uh, larger but kind of re- re- culturally homogenous communities where they, you know, everybody knew their role and everybody knew what was expected of them and we all kind of shared the same gods and the same beliefs and so on. And so it's relatively recently in human history that we've got this idea that everybody has a different view and uh, about everything <laughs> and that therefore, you know, argument and disagreement are kind of uh, are kind of necessary. So just physiologically in terms of our evolved behavior, we're not ready for this. So just notice what happens to you when you're in a disagreement. Yeah, you get a little tense and you start to kind of you start to kind of tunnel, psychologists call it tunneling, when you're just focusing on one thing. And often that one thing is, how can I make myself look good in this disagreement? Mm. Or how can I avoid losing face? How can I avoid being humiliated? Right? None of which is good for an intelligent, open, productive, creative conversation. Once you've noticed that happening to yourself, you'll kind of have an insight into why that person is acting irrationally or, or, or it'll being sullen or being really difficult. And then the step after that is to say, well, how can I help manage them, right? How can I, maybe I need to, maybe I need to stroke their ego. Maybe I just need to tell them, you don't have to be dishonest, by the way. You just, just honestly tell them that you really respect them or you, know, you think their work in this area is actually second to none. And that's why I want to have this argument with you because I think, you know, you're the the foremost expert on on this, whatever it is, right? You're just trying to settle them and say, look, I respect you. I like you. That's why I'm having this conversation with them. Um, And it's not going to work with everyone because some people are just really, really difficult or some people just have, you know, high anxiety about about disagreements and so on. Um, But there are often things you can do to make even the most difficult disagreement go better than than it's going. There is a tool that you mentioned in your book that can help to relax a little bit the situation and help with the conflict and is the use of humor. And actually you you mentioned in your book an anecdote about the Beatles when they were meeting their new music manager at Abbey Road Studios. 
about how George Harrison made a comment about the tie of the guy and and, and something that could have gone into a conflict. He, he made him laugh and then that relaxed the situation. But the question that I had is, humor doesn't come naturally to everyone. And the person doing the humor needs to be able to read the room very well because otherwise the situation or the comment can be taken so wrong that it could worsen the situation or the point of the conflict. Is that, would you agree with that? Yes. Um, yeah. So, I mean, humor, making jokes and so on is not um, uh, a, a sort of tool that's going, not going to solve every problem. Right. And, and as you suggest, you know, some people are going to be more comfortable with it than others. So it's just one of, it should be just one of many kind of tools in your armory to make difficult conversations go better, but it can be a useful one. The essential reason is that you are, what you're do, always doing, whatever tool you use, is you're trying to find some sort of common ground that is beyond the disagreement, the thing that you're disagreeing about, right? So so when you when you have a disagreement and um, it's not going well. It'll go better if you have a kind of strong intuitive sense that there are other things that you agree on, right? Ideally, that's we all agree that this team has a common objective and we're all contributing to it, right? That's the, your ideal kind of workplace culture is we're going to go really hard on this disagreement because we all know that we, we have the same goal here, right? Um, but it doesn't always feel like that. And, you know, all the all kind of, right, workplace cultures or, or, or kind of the culture in the room is not always like that. So there are kind of other things you can do. And and when people kind of find something to laugh at and, and people everyone's genuinely laughing in a, in a nice way, you know, there's a sense of shared experience, right? A joke is a kind of shared kind of like, oh, that's funny. I can see you laughing. I can feel you laughing and, and you can feel me laughing. Um, it's a kind of bonding thing. You know, I, I, there's a study in the book of um, team of, Israeli and Palestinian negotiators, uh, the negotiation team that led to the Oslo Accords, which is probably the kind of nearest that the two sides have got to an agreement in the last sort of whatever it is, you know, 50 years. Um, and those guys, there's lots of lessons to draw from what happened there. But one of them is they spent a lot of time together before they got into the real details of the negotiation, just getting to know each other and telling each other jokes and funny stories and, 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 just, you know, discovering that they had a shared sense of humor. And of course, why should humor be important to a negotiation about land and rights and so on? It's not, but the human kind of aspect of this is always present, right? We're not just talking about the thing that we're talking about. There's always this relationship aspect as well. And humor is a way to kind of bond people together. One of the other things that, you know, we've talked about on this podcast before with other people, though, is is, is about conflict taking the form of a kind of devil's advocate position or you know we sometimes think of that as red teaming and there are situations within finance where we actively need to try and take the other side of an argument but more generally it can become a bit of a habit where you just simply take the devil's advocate position every time i know you know you have a you know a view that that as a tool can be quite crude or there are times where it's not particularly helpful and other times where it might be a bit more helpful can you kind of give a bit more about your view on on devil's advocate as a as a kind of approach yeah, it's really interesting. And when I when I go and talk to businesses or organizations about how to have, you know, better, more productive 
conflicts and, and debates and, and disagreements and so on in their teams, this comes up a lot. And I have a kind of two, a sort of slightly double-edged feeling about it. Um, one is that it can be useful if you if you feel that you're team is really in agreement about something and you're just a little bit wary you're thinking well we're we're agreeing too much <laughs> um I, i'm gonna take pick someone maybe it's you but maybe it's someone else to really think about the other side here um and and kind of do it mechanically like that do a devil's advocate approach right that to me is good like that's better than nothing that's better than than just all going along with something because you you haven't really interrogated your opinion or, or your yeah. decision until you've really kind of had the argument out however it's not ideal because i ideally the disagreements are authentic and actually genuinely felt um and there've been some interesting studies on in this that i cite in the book where they they kind of had various different versions where sometimes the 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 devil's advocate in inverted commas was somebody who had been instructed to take a particular point of view but didn't really have that point of view and in other cases the person really did have the point of view and they were arguing against the the consensus in the room and it was always more productive and more persuasive when the person generally did have the point of view um partly cuz they probably make a better case because they 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 feel it kind of honestly and passionately but also because the others in the room can see that there is something at stake here this person's almost kind of taking a a risk a personal risk in putting themselves on the line here and they kind of respect that that actually kind of makes them think a little bit harder about what they're saying and and what they're doing um so yeah if it's better than nothing to do it kind of mechanically and artificially um but i ideally you want to be bringing out each person's individual kind of point of view and so it should be a kind of authentic activity i think that's really interesting because that's something that we've you know we've we've kind of tinkered with this we've explored this on our team you know we're we're trying to make investment cases for various stocks and companies and and usually there's a very natural sense of we've got different perspectives and we come at this and we we like to kind of pull the argument different directions but occasionally you end up in a situation where there's a very very high kind of there's a lot of confirmation bias going on, a lot of consensus that that seems like a good idea. And where we've tried to inject a kind of false red team or devil's advocate, and one of us has tried to play that role, it, it's not particularly convincing in terms of being a genuine challenge. And it's we've found it better and much more effective to, to go outside of our team uh, uh, e- e- yeah. even where we're not, you know, the, the, we're not as sure as the way that the analysis is going to be done. But to find someone who is a genuine advocate for a different position and use that to challenge us, because you end up with a better, a better, you know, form of conflict there or challenge. Yeah, no, that's an even better approach. Um, yeah, and it, it reminds me of of I mean, this is slightly different, but but the Warren Buffett approach, um, where you know, when, when he's deciding whether or not to make an, an acquisition, um, he'll kind of hire an ex an outside expert to uh, you know, the bank is 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 you know they, they obviously make money on the deal going through, so they're all for it, but so he he hires, he hires an outside um expert to argue against the deal, and he also gives the guy a bonus on the the deal not going through right so yeah. he's kind of careful to balance the the incentives so yes. yeah, it, it yeah. becomes a kind of a much more of a, a really kind of powerful debate 
There's a famous American investor called Howard Marks, and um, he's quite famous because he has been quite successful. But he's also famous because he started writing memos uh, about 30 years ago uh, to his clients. And in those memos, at some point, many years after he had started, he realized that he kept repeating, this is the most important thing. And he went, he would go and point out to something. And then a few months later or years later, he would say, this is the most important thing. It was different to the one before. And so he may, he wrote or he compiled a book uh, called The Most Important Thing, which is 14 or 15 different things that are very important in the context of investing. And so my next question is a little bit tricky because you have in your book, you have set a list of rules for how to deal with conflict. And so I wanted to ask you if there was just this one rule that oversees the other rules to the point that without that particular rule, the others are not as powerful. Yeah, I think it is... And and I will I've touched on this you know unsurprisingly as as we've been as we've been going through, but it is to connect. I, so I think that I think I have it as the first rule in the book, which is first connect. Um, so and and that means that if if you can before you get to the actual substance of the disagreement, try and make some sort of connection to the person try and find some sort of shared ground try and find some human connection but kind of settle the relationship level but sequence it that way often you know the disagreement goes wrong because people kind of move straight to the disagreement before they've actually tried to make a connection and settle the 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 relationship side of things Um, and i just saw this come up again and again which is why i kind of thought it was probably the most important rule so let me just quickly kind of summarize some of them Um, I talked, as you know, in the book, I talked to people who have very intense uh, conflict-ridden conversations for a living, right? So I talked to uh, terrorist negotiators. I talked to hostage negotiators. Um, I talked to divorce mediators. I talked to therapists and so on. This comes up again and again. So hostage negotiators, for, for instance, you know, they are trained to pick up the phone and they don't get straight into the negotiation. They don't say, right, okay, how are we going to get these guys out? They pick up the phone and they spend a few minutes just saying, hey, look, um, I just want to say, we all think you're doing a really good job here. You've been dealing with us very professionally. Um, you're calm, just really impressed with the way you've handled this. And then they say, okay, so what are we going to do? And it's really important that first stage because the person on the other end is feeling incredibly anxious and threatened and, you know, and... Um, will kick back the moment they start to feel like somebody's trying to 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 dominate them. So if you can just sort of lower their defenses, then they're much more open to the the negotiation. Mediators will always start with a point of common ground. They'll say, okay, before we get into this, can we just agree that what's important here is the kids' future, right? And and sometimes. They'll, they won't even agree with that. They'll say, well, she doesn't care about the kids' future. <laughs> and, and the divorce media, one of them said to me, look, sometimes I just have to say, look, can we just agree we are in this room now? <laughs> right? They said, well, we, we can agree on that. And he said, even that works. Right? It's, it's kind of ridiculous. But as Henry Kissinger put it, you start with the areas of agreement and you move to the areas of disagreement. Right? Um, and it actually, you know, you start with the agreement, what you agree on, or you just start with a conversation about our lives, you know, about our families. Um, there's lots of different ways to, to approach it. But the basic principle is 
find some sort of connection before you get into the tough bit. That's really interesting. I have to say that my favorite anecdote throughout the whole book was the one on Nelson Mandela and how he oh, yes. allowed his adversary to say face and how he turned him around. That was so powerful. I just went straight into Amazon and bought the book, uh, his biography, which I haven't read and it's been on my list for forever. That was absolutely incredible. Well, I'm glad you said that. That's, that's probably my favorite story. It's certainly one of my favorite stories um, in the book. It's um, it's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the book, for those who are interested, that I, I drew this story from is um, by John Carlin. And I think, it, yeah, it's called Knowing Mandela. It's a nice short book. Um, and it is about... You know, it, it is about knowing Mandela because he was a journalist who, who got to know Mandela um, as he was kind of coming out of prison and and, and taking over the becoming president. Um, and Mandela was just, a, a, among other things, just a brilliant, intuitive psychologist. He really got people. He understood people. He understood what made them made them tick. He understood what they were scared of and what they hoped for. And he was just really good at putting people at ease before he got into the really tough stuff of, of negotiation. Um, and um, yeah, I, w- I would just say, you know, um, read my book, the stories in, in, in the book, um, but also if you can get hold of the John Carlin book, that's also a good read. That's fantastic. Um, Ian, we're coming to an end of our session and we always ask our guests two signature questions. Number one, a book recommendation, and you can recommend one of your uh, books. And a- an example of a bad outcome where you can identify the outcome due to bad process and not bad luck. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, the book, I, I won't recommend one of my books. I mean, obviously I do recommend all of them, but we, <laughs> we we've talked a, 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 you know, at length about my book. So, um, I'll, I'll recommend somebody else's. Um, there's a book called the most human human by Brian Christian, which came out, I don't know, a few years ago, maybe eight or nine years ago now. And it is about the rise of AI and, and machine learning and how to respond to that. And basically the way he frames it is, is just the most inspiring way. You know, he, he basically says, look, we should see this as a challenge. What's happening is that these machines are raising the bar for us to be more human, right? Um, they're, they're taking away all the kind of routine and algorithmic aspects of our lives and of our thinking. And so how can we kind of get better at thinking and behaving more creatively, curiously, um, unpredictably, um, less algorithmically? And he's really interesting because he's, he's a computer scientist and he's also a, a philosopher and a poet. So he has this kind of broad range from the science to, to the humanities. Um, and it's the best book about the challenge of AI and machine learning that, that I've read. Interesting. And the example of about outcome? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so many at the moment, right? I didn't know where, where to start. I think, I, and I don't know much about the, the decision-making process because um, I don't think many people do but i did think that the decision by fifa was it fifa but the football authorities to launch a kind of european super league about whenever it was a year 18 months ago 
and then quickly have to backtrack when there was a kind of revolt from from football fans saying actually we we don't want that we like our domestic leagues i thought that was you know first of all evidence just of a t- terrible decision making process i don't know what it was but the, the it was so <clears throat> sort of flatly wrong because they hadn't given any thought to how it would be received by by fans or 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 by politicians in various countries and so on it just failed really dismally but the thing that struck me about it was it was it, it it felt like a very zoomy decision <laughs> right it felt like the kind of thing where it all kind of makes sense but they didn't have a very strong intuition for they couldn't kind of read the various rooms do you see what i mean like you you can draw a diagram of how this thing's going to work and you can kind of do a powerpoint presentation and everybody kind of has the logic but i think if you're doing that these making these kind of big decisions that involve emotions and sentiments which obviously sport football does then you can't just do it in that kind of logical analytical way you need to have more of a kind of feeling and i think you're only going to get that feeling and that sense of of what's going on when you're actually with actual people in actual rooms um so um yeah i i that's just my sort of um my impression of of, of why, why that went wrong i i think that's a really really interesting one because it makes me think of a subject we could maybe try and find a way to explore more on the pod you know at a, at a future date which is an instance where something needs to be kept secret um, or, you know, needs to be done in a small group of people for the nature of keeping something quiet. That might be a military decision or it might be a big financial decision or a deal or this is a, you know, the the, the, the Super League idea. And therefore you're, you're running the risk of there being a horrible echo chamber, that you're not getting a diversity of thought because you have to keep it amongst a small group. So how, when decisions have to be kept amongst small groups, do you inject the diversity that you don't end up with the, the exactly the situation that you, you just highlighted, Ian, which is the second it was released, everyone knew within five seconds that was a terrible idea. And yeah, you know, that it was going to die question. on its feet. And, you know, so how do you kind of, there are certain instances where you're constrained in those ways. And how do you, how do you address that? Yeah, that that's, that's almost a, another conversation and a fascinating one. It's a really good question. Is Yeah, that kind of trade-off between secrecy and viewpoint diversity and, How do you manage that? Yeah. Yeah, Leslie, thank you very much for coming to the Ballet Perspective podcast. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the conversation. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.